from God. I read from a pastor this quote that I, I, I love to repeat often. He says, whatever God requires, he provides. Whomever God chooses, he changes. Whatever God starts, he finishes. And whatever God promises, he fulfills. I love that quote. And I believe that all of this is true. <clears throat> but it is this last one that I want us to consider today. Whatever God promises, he fulfills. I believe we would agree with it, but the reality is that we often struggle with it. See, life has taught us something. Life has taught us, often painfully, that if something appears too good to be true, it probably is, right? And at times, this can drift over into the promises of God for our lives. It's very easy to believe and trust in God when there's plenty of money and everything is going smoothly, health is good, the job is great, the family's going well, and on and on and on. And it's easy to deal with life that way. Yes, we believe in the promises of God. Look at what He has done. But what happens when all of these things severely fall apart? Then we begin to question, where's the promise of God? You know, where's all of this health, wealth stuff that... He promises, and we begin to question. And as we look at the church at Philadelphia, we will see that life was anything but smooth and easy for them. It was very, very difficult. They suffered greatly at the hands of their persecutors, and it would have been very easy for these Christians at Philadelphia to question God's faithfulness. But as we read through this letter and through Jesus' commendations, we see that they were tempted to deny Jesus and to disobey his word. They faced temptation relentlessly to quit, to turn. And then the opposition they faced from the Jewish community, not just from the city, but from the Jewish community, only made things worse. So to, to look at it and to see it through, it would have been natural for them to begin to question if Jesus has abandoned them. Like, where is God in all of this? Why is this going on? Why is this happening? And it's ongoing. It's not like there's relief. It would have been very easy. But Jesus, in this passage, in this church, in this letter to this church, Jesus gives them and he gives us several awesome promises that helped them and helps us to overcome this fear and to overcome doubt. So that's what I want us to do is to walk through this message to the church at Philadelphia in verses 7 through 13. We're not going to get it all done today, but to walk through this and look at these promises and pray, and I pray that we would allow them to grip our hearts and help us to understand it more deeply, more intimately. So let's read through this, and then we'll go through one verse at a time. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's look at uh, this verse by verse, and we look at verse 7. Just a little background of the city. I don't want to spend too much time on the background. There's so much that could be said. But when we look at the city of Philadelphia, um, it was not that popular. However, the city itself was, an, was on an important trade route. So there were people that would go in and out constantly. It was 25 miles southeast of Sardis. Okay? Um, it actually is now the site in Turkey of a little town called Elishir. Never been there, haven't heard about it, just a small little town. But that's uh, the, uh, the, 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 the present city of what used to be Philadelphia. And what's interesting is that this city was located in a district where volcanoes were very active 
and they had frequent earthquakes. In 17 AD, along with the city of Sardis, there was this great earthquake. It was unparalleled in history. It actually destroyed Sardis, and it damaged Philadelphia tremendously, the city of Philadelphia. And by the way, you all know that when I say the city of Philadelphia, I'm not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, just wanna, it just hit me. I thought, I should clarify that. Um, it's, a, it's the city there in the, in the, the Near East. But the damage of the city was substantial. In fact, it suffered for many, many years. People fled from the city of Philadelphia during these times of these earthquakes. So it was almost a ghost town. Um, and so there was lingering fear that another earthquake might hit, hit the city. And, of course, there was many aftershocks which sort of reminded them that, hey, this is a dangerous city because of earthquakes, right? And so it was rebuilt. Uh, uh, there was a lot of aid given by Tiberius. Uh, but what's interesting is that people who once lived there moved back, but they didn't move into the city. They stayed out in the open outside of the city for fear of another earthquake. They didn't want to be near any structures because if the earthquake comes, structures come tumbling down on them. So they lived out in the open in their tents, and they'd go into the city to do what they needed to do out of, uh, out of fear. Um, now, in return for um, the help from Tiberius, they erected a monument as visible evidence of gratitude. And, of course, whenever you erect a monument back then, it would turn into idol worship. So you know that there's idol worship there. And even though Philadelphia was not a large city, it was a busy commercial center. So people would constantly go in and out because of that trade route. So there's people going in and out. And it's important to remember these things uh, because... A lot of these people would also laugh and mock and persecute the Christians. And so it was a meeting point of roads in this trade route uh, from the northeast to the southeast. And so it was busy, though it was not that important. And so that's the city of Philadelphia. And Jesus introduces himself, or he begins by describing himself with four characteristics. And I want us to look at each of these characteristics to help us understand who Jesus Christ is even more. The first we see is the attribute of holiness. Notice he says, he who is holy. Now we could spend weeks talking about Jesus' holiness. We're not going to do that. We don't have that kind of time. But he is holy. He is per, uh, perfect purity without sin. He is apart from everything else and He's separate from everything else and separate unto God. He is absolute perfection. And though he is rejected by the world, especially by the Jews today, who belong, uh, and back then who belonged to the uh, synagogue of Satan, he always has been and always will be holy. There's never a time where Jesus Christ was not holy. And thus, as the Holy One, he can only speak what is right and pure. Thus, because he, can, he is holy, because he can only speak what is right and pure, he deserves to be listened to. And that's important because, let's face it, the majority of our world does not listen to him. In fact, many mock him. And there's none with whom he can be compared to. There's no one that can measure up to him, right? None can measure up to him. Everything fails in comparison and that's what holiness means. He is unlike anyone. He is unlike anything. He is altogether unique. He transcends everything. Transcendence means that he's way beyond. So even if you were to grasp the greatness of our universe, Jesus Christ is beyond even the universe. That's transcendence. That's his holiness. But at the same time, we also know that he's very close and imminent to us. right? But he is transcendent. He's totally other. He's in a class by himself. He's infinitely beyond everything. We must understand that because too often people think of Jesus as just another person that's like us. He's a good friend. True, he's a good friend, but he's way beyond just a friend. Okay, He's not just another, quote, good person. He's beyond being a good person. Too often we limit him and by saying he is holy, he is way beyond what our minds could ever imagine. We must keep that in mind of who he is. And please note this well. 
this glorious, indescribable attribute of God is here predicated on Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God. I, I know we believe that, but often from, I hear people talking, it's like we think about it, but do we really believe it? Do we really show him the honor of being holy, holy, holy God? That's what it means that he's holy. He is true God who deserves all that glory. So it's important because holiness is that virtue of which God alone is God. When you think of God, he's holy. Thus, Jesus is holy. He is God, right? And so, as one person said, holy is moral majesty. I love that. Holy is moral majesty. That's Jesus Christ. So he said he is holy. Keep that in mind in everything. He is equal to the Father. Just as God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, holy, holy. The second description that Jesus uses of himself is that he is true. Notice it says, who is true? He is true in the sense that he is real and genuine in contrast to that which is not real like the many gods that they worship back then and today. The many false gods. I remember when I went to India, I couldn't keep track of Every corner there was a different god. <laughs> Amazing. I remember walking down the street and there was this, they called it a temple. It was no bigger than this room. And on top there was this big, I don't know what it was, some kind of an idol. But the head was cut off. Yeah, they had no head. And I said, what happened there? Well, uh, apparently they had this major flood one, one time, and people prayed that this so-called God would protect them. They never did, and so they got upset, and they went and chopped his head off. <laughs> That's not Jesus. Our God is real. Okay, So he is true. He's genuine. He is real. And to the Hebrew mind, this refers to being faithful and trustworthy, deserving of our confidence, this is important, especially for the Christians in, uh, in Philadelphia. No matter what we go through, we can be confident in him. He's dependable. He's reliable. He is consistent, and he is steadfast. These are things we must keep in mind, regardless of what we go through. No, no matter what the difficulty we face, he can be depended upon. He can be trusted. We can place full confidence in him, even though in life it looks like everything is going against me. He is true. He is genuine. He can be trusted, unlike the many false gods today, including the God of money. Jesus Christ is far more trustworthy than any amount of money that any person can have. When he, spe uh, when he speaks, it is reality. It's not just a form of reality. It is absolutely trustworthy. And it's interesting, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, loved to use this description of Jesus as being true. Uh, it was one of his favorites. In fact, he used it in all of his writings 22 times. The rest, of New, uh, the rest of New Testament used that description five times. John loved to tell people that Jesus Christ is true. He is genuine. And so though there are many, and in the population of this thinking is growing, many claim that Jesus is a fairy tale or a figment of the mind or simply another good person. We have to understand he is not that. He's the real deal. Right? He is true. He is genuine. He is faithful. We can, uh, we can place our confidence in him. He's true to his word, and he can be trusted to keep his promises. And he is the genuine Messiah that can be trusted in everything in life. In fact, this is the blessed hope that they needed based on the uh, uh, persecution they were facing. And it's the blessed hope we need in the world today when we look at the direction of our country, the direction of this world. This is the one, he is the one that we have to trust. We can't trust in our politics. We can't trust in this world. But we can trust in Jesus Christ. We can place our confidence in him. And so uh, just as they uh, had him as their blessed hope of then, he is the same for us. So Jesus is the genuine holy Messiah who remains true to his word. And he can be trusted because Jesus cannot fail. He is true. The third description that Jesus gives of himself is that he holds the key of David. Now that phrase, 
key, the key of David is a metaphorical expression that indicates complete control over the royal household. That's what it refers to. The one who has that key controls the household. And so the, that phrase of David, it actually means of David's kingdom. So the one who has the key of David's kingdom, that is the messianic kingdom. So Jesus is the one who has the key to the messianic kingdom. And so it can be translated the key of authority or the key that shows he has authority, any one of those. And an illustration of this, an example of this is in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, where we read of Eliakim, <coughs> excuse me, who was given the key to the house of David. In other words, Eliakim had the authority over the royal treasury, and he is the one who would allow people into the king to see King David. He had the key of the house of David. He had that authority. Yes? What, what was that in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 22, verses... Verses 20 through 22. So Jesus, as the root and the offspring of David, he, when it says he has that key, basically saying that he has that authority and that key to his messianic kingdom. He's the one who allows people in. He is the one who keeps people out. It's up to him. He has that authority. He has all authority. And that's that reference that he holds the key of David. In Matthew 16, 19, the keys represent the authority to enforce the laws of the kingdom. That's Jesus. That's what he has. He has the authority of that messianic kingdom. And so he is the true and holy Messiah who alone possesses the power to open the door for those who are his to enter his kingdom. Only he has that. He has that authority. It's not a shared authority. And there's no one that can thwart it, no one that could stop it, no one that could enforce it, only Jesus. He has the undisputed authority to admit or to exclude from his kingdom. Satan can't do it. We can't do it. Christ alone. He has the key. He has that authority. So that was the third description. And the fourth description is tied close to this third one. It says that he, uh, he is the one who opens and closes. Notice, who opens and no one, can, no one was shut and who shuts and no one opens. This phrase, this description states more explicitly the supreme authority that Jesus Christ has in his kingdom. He alone has the power and authority to admit into or exclude into his kingdom, as I've said. He has that authority. He opens the way to those who are his own, and no one can shut the door to, his own, uh, to the people who belong to Jesus Christ. No one can prevent it. No one can change it. No one can stop it. Jesus Christ alone has that authority. Not Satan, none of his demons, none of the, none of, uh, of the worldly powers can uh, uh, stop it. So when Jesus shuts the door on those who are not his own, no one can open it. It doesn't matter what priests say. It doesn't matter what people believe. No one can open the door that Jesus shuts to his kingdom. No one. That's why we believe in his sovereign grace and election. So know what he does here. With this awesome description, Jesus begins to commend these Christians. And he's going to start doing that by um, uh, giving these promises. And he begins by giving the first promise there in verse 8. So I want us to start looking at these promises. Look at verse 8. He said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now notice how he says, I know your deeds. This, this is, when I read this, it's very encouraging. This word for I know in the Greek means complete and permanent knowledge. That's what Jesus Christ has. It's very intimate, personal, complete knowledge. And so he knows permanently, completely, all who are his. And it's a permanent knowledge. It doesn't change. It's not like he changes his mind. There's no such thing as Jesus changing his mind. Right? It's a permanent knowledge. And the beauty of it is, is that it's impossible for Jesus to forget. Now, I don't know about you, but I forget a lot. I do. I forget. I, I deal with people every day. I deal with different people every day. I forget names. I'm sorry I do. But Jesus never forgets anything. He knows it all permanently 
and completely. That's what that Greek word, I know, and the way it's written in the Greek text, that's what he wants to emphasize. He's omniscient in all things. And this is important for us to remember. Because you see, when these Christians there in Philadelphia obey the Lord and do that which honors him, Jesus knows it completely. And he knows it permanently. Even though, even though others may not acknowledge it, even though others may not know it, Jesus does know it. And that's true for us. He knows. Though you may never be recognized for some of the things you have done, it doesn't matter. The one that does matter knows it all. He knows the heart. He knows everything. He never forgets. It is a permanent knowledge. And some may acknowledge their deeds, but forget it shortly thereafter. But Jesus' knowledge never forgets. There are things you probably have done in your past that you can't even remember. Jesus knows it all. He never forgets. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. Because it doesn't matter what people think. Jesus knows. That's what matters. Whether people see you do certain things or not, that's okay. You may be alone doing something and nobody else can see it. You may be giving a, uh, doing something that's very sacrificial and overwhelming and nobody sees it. And you think, what's the use? Jesus knows it. He never forgets it. It's a permanent knowledge. That's encouraging. Because you never, ever, ever do anything that Jesus Christ does not know. Thus, you can do things when nobody else is watching. You can still do those things that honor Him because He will know. And that's all that matters. Whether your name is announced from the pulpit or not is irrelevant. Whether your name is in the newspapers or on, on the Internet or whatever for something that you've done is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ knows it. And He knows it permanently. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. That, to me, is very encouraging. Whether I'm acknowledged by people or not is irrelevant. See, there's security for all of us who are His. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ is never unaware, without knowledge, of all that we go through and all that we do and all that we have to put up with. It's a great encouragement for us. Jesus then gives a significant promise. It's the first one of several that He makes in this passage. Notice what he says. He states that he has given to them, or before them, an open door. The, the Greek verb, the way it's stated here, conveys the thought of completion with ongoing results. In other words, it can be translated, I have given and it remains open. Okay, I have given and it remains open. So I've given you an open door and it remains open. So Jesus' promise of giving to them uh, this open door is permanent. It's ongoing. Praise God that it is a permanently open door for his children. Right? And so that's what he's given to them. That's what he's given to us. Permanently an open door that no one is able to shut. It remains open. Now, what is this door that remains open? Well, there's different people who look at it different in different ways. Uh, some refer to this as Jesus being the door of the sheep in John chapter 10. And so it's referring to making access to God permanent for his sheep through him. Others believe that the metaphor of the open door refers to more ministry opportunity for preaching the gospel like missionaries or evangelism. And those are possibilities. However, if we look at the context, I believe the context makes it very clear to what he is referring. right? Because we saw in chapter 7, I'm sorry, in verse 7, how he describes himself, the one who opens and no one can shut and, no, uh, and uh, who shuts and no one opens, right? And this is over his kingdom. He has authority over his kingdom. And he opens it to whomever he wants and shuts it to whomever he will. But, so based on this metaphor in verse 7, the open door is an open door to his kingdom that none can close to them. Jesus Christ is making this promise to Christians, to those Christians in Philadelphia. He's not making it to everybody in the world. He's making it only to those who are his own. And his promise is that he has opened the door, and it is an open door that no one, no one can shut. It remains open. So it refers to a sure entrance into the Messianic kingdom. 
It's promised to the church back then, and it's promised to the church today. No one, not even those of the synagogue of Satan, which we will see here in a minute, not even those Jews who are of the synagogue of Satan, not even they, with all their persecution, can keep these Christians from going in. Because Jesus Christ has opened the door. And they can't deny it. And so these Christians were excommunicated from the local, a local synagogue. Jesus says, that's okay. Because I have placed before you an open door to my kingdom. And it's a door that no one can shut. Even these who persecute you every day. Even those who lie about you. Even those who say, no, you can't come into the synagogue. Even they cannot shut this door that I have opened for you. And that's the promise for us as well. And that, uh, that, uh, that verb there in the Greek for open, it emphasizes the door that has been opened and it remains open. Okay, No one can shut that door. It, it permanently remains open. It's, an, it's emphatic. And so thus they can rest in confidence that regardless what they suffer, regardless what they go through, the door to Christ's kingdom is permanently standing open. Again, that should be a great encouragement for us, especially in light of what we are beginning to see more and more in this world. More Christians are suffering than ever before, and it's coming to our country. It's already here. But no matter what they do, no matter what they say, the door to his kingdom is open for us. And so it's a promise for all followers of Jesus Christ, regardless the persecution, regardless the tough times that they may face, they can rest assured their place in Christ's kingdom is permanently open. No one can thwart it. So it is a promise of assurance, and it's made by Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority. We belong to him forever. And thus, no, no amount of hardship, no amount of <clears throat> excuse me, persecution can undermine our salvation. To me, that's, that should be one of the greatest encouragements we have, that it doesn't matter what the president, what the politicians, or what these nations say or do or try to enforce on us, one thing rests assured, no one, no one can take you away from Jesus Christ. That door is permanently open to you. It's not open to everybody, just to those who are his. So think about what this statement says concerning Jesus' determination concerning you and your relationship to him. His mind is made up. And no one's going to change his mind, right? His will is resolute. His will is unchangeable. His goal is clear, and the means to accomplish this is his unchanging commitment. There's a sense in which we might, and I say this with reverence, to look at Jesus and say, this is his holy and righteous stubbornness. He's got that door open to his own, and he's stubborn. No one is going to change it. So I love his holy stubbornness that his that door remains open and it is it cannot be changed and when it comes to the welfare of his people Jesus Christ is stubborn he is and I love it I've been told I'm stubborn I'm nothing compared to Jesus Christ he's wholly stubborn he simply won't allow anyone to slam shut the door that he has opened so we always have to keep in mind that this door remains open not because of us but solely because of him. It's not up to us. So when we fail, we don't have to worry, oh no, what happened? Do I not belong? When we fail, we don't change Jesus' mind. When things happen, his mind doesn't change. When we do certain things that we shouldn't do, we can't look at it and say, oh no, did Jesus just slam the door shut? No. What does he say? It remains open. So you don't have the power you don't have the power to change the mind of Jesus Christ to shut the door in your face. It's permanent. And so we praise God for that. And as I've said, the world <clears throat> is growing more and more resistant to genuine Christianity. Persecution continues to increase. I have missionary friends that I know of that are going through some severe trials. We hear about it all over the world, and now we're hearing of Christians and pastors even in our own country. Um, it's becoming more dangerous in the world, and it's becoming, starting to become dangerous even in our own country here to be a Christian. 
the mocking is increasing, the laughter is increasing, yet not all, I, I, not all the animosity in this world, not the hatred, persecution from the world, not even uh, from the God of this world, none of that can shut the door on our faces to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's no power, there's no person, there's no influence that exists that can change the mind of Jesus. There's this bug flying here. <laughs> Missed them. So our relationship and intimacy with Jesus Christ is guaranteed by Jesus himself. That means then that no Islamic terrorist group, no wicked political leaders, no economic collapse, no terminal illness can take away this relationship. Nothing can interfere. Nothing can change. Nothing can bring a temporary stop. It's not like Jesus is going to shut the door for a day and then open it up again. It's permanent. Not the collective power of the entire world. Not the combined energy of all the demonic beings that exist. Neither Satan nor any other created being can overturn the decree of Jesus Christ who says, These are my people and they shall remain so for all eternity. No one can change that. Praise God for that confidence we can have. We don't have to fear this world. Because what's the worst that the world can do? The worst that the world can do is send us to Jesus Christ. I think that's awesome. Right? Let's go. <laughs> exactly. That's the worst that they can do. And they don't even realize it. How critical that is for us to keep in mind. Satan's deep hatred for us cannot take us away from Jesus Christ. Remember Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. It's very clear. Remember what the, Paul said. If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean that people won't come against us. It doesn't mean that demonic powers won't come against us. But if God is for us, what can they do? Really, nothing. Nothing. So Jesus is not denying we'll have opposition. But what he is saying is that although our enemies are numerous and powerful and relentless, they will always, always fail. Because Jesus Christ alone has the authority and he holds that door open. And it's open to you and to me forever, for all eternity. So critical. Yes, there's going to be disappointments in life. Yes, dreams will be shattered. Yes, relationships will fall apart. But one thing this world and demonic powers can't do, they can never shut that door. That's what Satan wants. You need to understand that. Satan hates the fact that we are uh, his, his, his children. He hates that. But nothing can hinder that. And you know why Satan hates it? Several reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is because in our glorified bodies, think, what is Satan? Satan is an angelic being, right? For us, that's huge. But when we have glorified bodies, what does that mean? What does the text of Scripture say? We will be above the angels. That's why Satan hates it. Because what happens to us is what he wants and he can't get it. He hates us. And he'll do anything and everything in his power to keep us from going. But see, it's too late. That door is open and it remains open and it can't be shut. We can't even shut it. That's the emphasis that Christ wants to get across to us. That's why in the last verses, uh, oh, I got him this time. There. Sorry, that offends you. This is why in the last verses of Romans 8, Paul makes it very clear that nothing, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. There's nothing. No matter what is contained in this entire universe, nothing exists that can take us away from Jesus Christ. But notice what Jesus also says here in verse 8. It says that they have little power, referring to the church's uh, small and limited influence, because it was a very small church. Please understand when he says little power here, he's, this is not a rebuke for the church. Okay, he's not discrediting them because they're small. Though they were small, they were faithful in keeping Christ's word and have not denied his name. This is important especially in our world today. Yes, they were small, but in the face of persecution, maybe even martyrdom, no doubt several died, they refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ. And note that verb there in verse 8, to deny. 
refers to, it refers to some specific occasions in the past when they were put to the test and they suffered, they still did not deny Jesus Christ. So they had been called upon and threatened to disregard Jesus Christ's words, to deny Jesus himself, but they refused and they continued to obey his word, even though it cost them their livelihood and for some it cost them their lives. They continued to remain faithful. We need to understand that uh, when we talk about being mocked, it's not like somebody just laughing. It was severe mocking back then, to the point where there there would be physical abuse. And of course, the Jewish community would slander them and mock them and try to get them into trouble. That's what they'd try to do to Jesus. That continued. And so they were tempted to turn and to deny Jesus Christ, but they remained faithful to him. They stayed true to his word in times of difficulty and persecution. And so they refused to deny Jesus Christ. We say that, and we say that's awesome, but we need to understand that those times are coming for us here in this country. It has changed that much. And we need to trust in who Christ is and his promises so that we can maintain faithfulness. We will be tempted to deny Jesus Christ. And so these Christians here remain faithful to Jesus Christ regardless of the price that it cost. And for some, it was a hefty price. They remained faithful. And as a result of remaining faithful, though they were small, because of their faithfulness, they accomplished great things for Christ. So though they were small and they lacked resources, they accomplished much for his name. And I think that this is a great encouragement for the many small churches in this world today. See, we need to understand something, and it's hard for people in churches to understand this, but it is critical that we do. The size of the church is not the measure of success. Contrary to what a lot of people in our churches think, the size of the church does not measure the success of the church. I find that not only encouraging, but also very um, frustrating. Because when you look at a lot of these conferences that they have, who do do they get to speak? If you don't have a church of 1,000 or 2,000, they'll never ask you to speak. And so what we do is we make them popular, and thus everybody wants to be like that. When I was in Bible college and seminary, everybody talked about, oh, we want to grow to 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. Nobody talked about, we want to elevate the name of Christ. We want to honor his glorious name. It's always about numbers. And it's sad. It's still that way. I remember I used to go to pastor, uh, pastor conferences, and you meet with pastors. You know the first question they ask? Yeah, they said, how many did you have Sunday morning? I am not exaggerating. So how many attended church Sunday morning? That's, the first, that's what they want to know. Not how are you doing? Not how's your relationship with the Lord? Not what is God doing, but how many did you have Sunday morning? That's the measure of success for a lot of people. And it's sad. It, it, was, it, was, it was frustrating. I stopped going to those, um, those, uh, conf- uh, those conferences. It, it would discourage me. We need to understand that the size of the church is not the measure of success, even though many in the church would think differently. And so the small church may be tempted to think that because they're small, they have failed, because they're not big like the mega church. They think they're not successful because they don't have as many people. And I would dare say that they are wrong. Okay, there are many. In fact, I would make the claim, some would disagree, and that's fine. But I would make the claim that there are far more mega churches that are failures today than successes. There's only a handful, of that, not even that many, that I would say are successful. But the majority of them, I would say, are faithful. Are unfaithful, I should say. Joel Olstein's church. How many of you would look at that church and say, no, there's a godly church. No. This church is all about man. I remember when I was at the college and I was uh, working with some men who were going into the ministry. And this one student belonged to this church of 5,000 in the Tampa Bay area. I'm not going to mention it. So we were talking about you know his role in the church and what he's doing. And he gets a little frustrated. He said, why? He said, there's certain passages of scripture that my pastor will not preach. I talked to him about it. And he said, we can't preach it because we have too many people and it would offend some people. <laughs> And I said, and you're okay with that? He said, no, I'm not okay. That's why he said when he graduates, he wants to move on. 
See, no wonder the church is five to 6,000 because too often people, well, I was taught this and I want my money back. I tell the school, I want my money back. This. I was taught that when you preach, you preach to felt needs. No, 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 no. You don't preach the felt needs. You preach the glory of Jesus Christ and let it fall where it may. So it doesn't matter the size of the church. Let's not get caught up with mega church sizes and say, wow, they're successful. The majority of them are not. And let's not look at all small churches and say, wow, they have failed because they're small. That's not true. I heard of a pastor, a friend of mine told me of, of a pastor he knows who pastored the same church for over 50 years. The church never grew more than 100, sometimes around 50, 75. But he said it was an incredible church because they ministered into the community. He remained faithful to the word of God and people grew, people were saved. 50 to 100. Most people would look at that pastor and say, mm, no, nah, we don't want you speaking at our conference. But I would look at that church and I would say I would take that church and that pastor over many mega churches today because they remained faithful. And so, so many in our churches today have gotten it all wrong and it's, it's, it's sad. It, it really grieves my heart because I've been through that before. We've used the world's measuring rod to determine success in the church. And notice, Jesus commends this church, but he doesn't commend them for the size. What does he commend them for? Their faithfulness to him. See, the church of Philadelphia did not deny Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. They even proclaimed him and preached him. And so it's very encouraging that from Jesus' perspective, the greatness of a church is not measured by its membership or how wealthy it is. I always tell, uh, I used to tell my, my students, my classes, I, I would say, the greatness of a church is found in the greatness of its king to whom they remain faithful and to whom they honor. That's the measurement of greatness. And this is critical. Because as I said before, many megachurches are big, but not because they remain faithful, but because, quote, felt needs and want to be careful what we preach and what we talk about because we don't want to offend anybody. I used to tell all of my classes, at the very beginning, first day of class, I would say, you know, we're told not to offend. You know who's the biggest offender? Jesus Christ. Jesus offended more people than anybody else in Scripture. He did. And how do you offend them? With truth. We will be offensive if we preach the truth and talk about the truth. Now, I'm not saying we get into people's faces and say, you're the... I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you preach the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way people will be offended. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, people may leave and people may not attend. That's between them and God. Right? See, the big church is any church that boasts in a big God. That's a big church, right? A mega church without a mega Christ is of little value. All it is is a, a social gathering. A mini church with a mega Christ makes them big in the eyes of him whose opinion only matters, Jesus Christ. And that's why he commends them. Because they may be small, but oh, how faithful they were. So this first promise of this one who is so awesome is that he opens the door and remains open for those who are his own. And our entrance into this eternal kingdom is never in jeopardy. Right? We remain faithful. We are big in his eyes. And that's why I pray constantly for the leadership of this church that we would continue to remain faithful to his word, remain faithful to the glory of his name. Because that's what makes us big. It's not numbers. But it's how we present the bigness of our God. Because in reality, that's all that matters. right? So let's not get caught up with the world's measurement. <clears throat> Verse 9, he gives us a second promise. I don't know if we'll get through this, but we'll try. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So he begins, or he gives a second promise, and notice how he begins. He begins with the word, behold. He does that because this is an emphatic word in the Greek text. We read it in English, it's like, okay, behold. But no, the, the, the Greek verb, do, is emphatic. It's a promise that points to his working in the lives of the church's enemies. He is emphasizing this promise. 
and it deals with the vindication of those who remain faithful. And I love this. Jesus Christ vindicates his own. And that's important for us to remember. And know what happens to the enemies of this church. He was, he's going to humble them. How? Well, he will cause them to bow down in homage to these believers. Think about it. These enemies who persecute and laugh and mock, they will bow down to these believers. And he will make, Jesus will make them know that he loves them. See, this is a gift from Jesus Christ to them for being faithful. Now, it's important to understand that the kneeling or the bowing before them is not referring to worship in the sense that these enemies are bowing down to us and worshiping us. It's not what that phrase means. This is the traditional way at that time of talking about honoring. In fact, in many Old Testament texts, it is the Gentiles who are described as bowing down to Israel. For example, Isaiah 49, verse 23, says, Kings will be your guardians, and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Notice, they will bow down. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. So notice, it's, they will honor you. In the end, they are the ones who are going to honor you. And this, in the Old Testament, was the Gentiles honoring the Jews. It's interesting here, in chapter 3, verse 9, it's the Jews who now are going to bow down before this predominantly Gentile church to the Christians. And he's talking about the Jew who is um, of the synagogue of Satan. Right? But the point here is that there will be honor. So they can uh, persecute, they can do what they wish, but in the end, they will honor those who belong to Jesus Christ. And note in verse 9 how he identifies these enemies. They're from the synagogue of Satan. So these are professing Jews. They're proud of their Jewish heritage. They claim to be Jews, but what does it mean that they're of the synagogue of Satan? Well, notice, they claim to be Jews, but are they true Jews? No. What does Jesus say? They lie. Who's the father of lies? Yeah. So they're of the synagogue of Satan. So they boast about their synagogue, and you Christians cannot come in. And Jesus said, they are of the synagogue of Satan. They lie about their identity. They are not real Jews. They're not true believers. Right, so Jesus indicates that Satan is the leader of this group, these people from the synagogue. And this is made clear in the persecution, because see, understand this, all those who come against and persecute true followers of Jesus Christ, everyone who does that are followers of Satan, whether they realize it or not. Satan is their God, even though they may not acknowledge it or know it. Everyone who persecutes, comes against, tries to destroy the church, or of Satan himself. They lie. And the Greek verb that they lie indicates that this is habitual. This is what they're, they're characterized by. They're, uh, they, they're untrustworthy. And so Satan is the father of lies, and thus they are liars, and thus it fits the description. They belong to the God of this world. And that's true of all people who reject Christ, who persecute believers. They are of Satan. That's why when you get a lot of these um, uh, groups that come against Christians and even these Muslim terrorists, they claim Allah, who doesn't exist, but who are they actually worshiping? Satan himself. Because Satan's desire from the very beginning is to oppose all those who follow after God. And what does Jesus say he's going to do to these enemies? He's going to make them know that he loves them. The Greek here is emphatic. It emphasizes, the emphasis here is being on Jesus who loves. It may be that these enemies doubted, and most likely they did doubt that Jesus loved them, but he's going to make it very clear that these Christians are mine, and I love them to the point of death. And he'll make them know that. So these false Jews will know that the Messiah loves these believers. 
So as we contemplate this promise, we have to understand that Jesus' promise of vindication may not take place in this lifetime. We understand that. We know that. Um, uh, the promise here is that there's a time coming when all who walk on the earth will know that Jesus deeply loves his own. And some will do it. Uh, some will be uh, at the judgment seat will know that Jesus Christ does love them. It's uh, interesting. I want to read this. A pastor said that at that time, at that time of judgment, says, all ridicule will be redressed. Every scoff will be silenced. Each sneer wiped from their faces. Then there will be an indescribable display of divine delight and loud celebration as Jesus will declare for all to hear and show for all to see that he truly loves his own. And that's why we remain faithful. Because right through to the end, Jesus declares we belong to him. Regardless of what we go through. And understand everything we go through, in the end, they will bow the knee and honor us. Because we belong to Christ and Christ will declare, he, she is mine. That will never change. Any thoughts? Any questions? I know I did all the talking. Yes? John, Jesus said, two things I speak to you so that you might find peace. The world you will find turmoil. Exactly. He has overcome the world, and we overcome the world with him. That's why we can remain faithful. And I say this because the time is coming when it's it's gonna it's it's coming that we're gonna be suffering. There's gonna be persecution, and I say that not to cause you to fear. I say that to say Christ loves us, keeps us, and we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement you give us through your word. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we would leave encouraged knowing that we are in your hands and we know that Jesus Christ has all authority. The door remains open and we belong to him. So as we leave this place and we go out this week, may we stand strong for Christ regardless of what people may think or say. Now prepare our hearts for the next hour. Grant that we would have ears to hear and that we would worship and praise you as you deserve, that our hearts would be overwhelmed by you again and again. Come and do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.